glad you're here. We're moving into the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for the last several weeks, and we're kind of on the down home stretch, downhill stretch. And so today we're going to jump into chapter 12, and we're going to see an encounter that Jesus has with some leaders that has a lot of implications for today's world. So let's just jump right into the Scripture. We're going to dive right in, and then we're going to talk about the implications of this encounter and how Christians can live in this for today's world. So Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, says this, And they sent to him, that being Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So let's just pause there for a moment. If somebody ever comes to you and starts talking to you like that, just know that there's something else about to happen, right? Like this is, this is butt-kissing 101. And, and so that's what they're, they're trying to schmooze him a little bit. And so they, they, say, they, they say all of that. And then they get to their real point. It's a question. It says, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one to him. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This, uh, this passage of Scripture is so interesting for a couple of different reasons, but, but this is the third confrontation that, that Jesus has with the Sanhedrin in and around the temple of Jerusalem. It, it's also the second time that they have had a, a conversation where they're intentionally trying to trap Jesus into saying something so that they, can, uh, that they can have something against him. If you go back to the chapter 11, which is a passage we didn't look at, but if you go back and read it, you'll see the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they come to Jesus and they confront him about his authority because Jesus had just cleared the temple out. He'd gone in there and he'd seen what they were doing in there and, and he didn't like it, and so he flipped over some tables and he, he ran some people out with some whips. Think about that for just a moment. Like that's, We like the humble, meek, mild Jesus. I like that Jesus. I like that Jesus that comes in and turns some tables over and, and has a whip and is chasing people out. I, I kind of I like that Jesus. You know, my Jesus is a tough guy. You don't mess with my Jesus. And, and so, so they're coming to him and they're questioning him about his authority. And, and he answers their questions by posing another question concerning the baptism of John. And, and basically he just springs their trap. They've laid this trap and he springs it. And, and he tells them a parable about some, some tenants working in a vineyard. And it's clear to, to those that he's talking to that they are the wicked tenants in this vineyard. They're the ones who have killed the prophets and are going to kill the, the beloved son. And, and because they understand the meaning of this parable, that Jesus is calling them out, they are fired up. They are infuriated with them. And so, so now they're, just, they're all the more uh, amped up and all the more looking for reasons to, to find something wrong with Jesus, to have him arrested. And that leads to this conflict. This third conflict, the second that the Sanhedrin have initiated. And so the Sanhedrin initiate this, but you'll notice they're absent from the story. They send some Pharisees and some Herodians to, to Jesus, and they want to ask him about politics and religion. That's, a, that's always a, a surefire way to get a great conversation going, isn't it? Talk politics and religion. I, I've been at some social gatherings where, where people know that you know I'm a preacher, and they'll say to me beforehand, hey, we don't want to talk about any politics tonight, all right? We don't, we don't want to talk about any religion tonight. We, we just want to watch football and, and have a good time, right? Like, that's all we want to do. No, no politics, no religion. 
Because people have strong opinions about those things, right? I mean, you're bound if you ask somebody a question right now, and, I, and look, I don't really care what side of the aisle you file on, fall on, but you ask somebody what their opinion about the president is, and everybody's got an opinion, right? Good, bad, good or bad, everybody's got an opinion. And I've been told before that politics and religion, politics and the church, they don't mix. You should keep politics out of the church. And I'm just going to tell you that I disagree with that. In fact, I strongly disagree with that. And here's why. Because there are a lot of political issues that are moral issues. And if the church doesn't take a stand on those moral issues, then who are we expecting to take a stand on that? If, if we don't stand up, and voice God's opinion, not our opinion, right, but God's opinion, then who are we expecting is going to do that? Nobody else is going to if the church doesn't. So, so this idea that we got to keep politics out of the church, I'm calling bull on, okay? We, we, we have to have strong, strongly rooted in God's word opinion about issues. But, but again, rooted in God's word, not in ours. Now, I'm never going to stand up here and tell you who you should vote for. Or you should vote for this party or that party. That, that's between you and, and the Lord. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not going to endorse a candidate. But we can talk politics. And we can talk issues. Um, this whole Russia-Ukraine thing, you know, people have said, you know, the church shouldn't say anything about it. We ought to condemn that in the strongest possible terms. What, what, what is going on over there is absolutely wrong. And if people are afraid to say that because they're worried that their tax-exempt status is going to be taken away, shame on them. It is wrong, and the church should say so. So we're going to talk politics and religion, all right? And look, I know that makes people uncomfortable right off the bat. But again, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to tell you you have to agree with every politician or disagree with every politician. I'm not going to tell you any of that. I, what I'm going to tell you is that there, there are several implications from, from this passage of Scripture that we can learn from. And how we can live as Christians live in this highly politically charged climate. So, so the Sanhedrin, they, they want to talk politics and religion with Jesus. And so they send the Pharisees and the Herodians. And, and right away we suspect something fishy because these two groups, they don't get along. I mean, this is literally the left and the right side of the aisle coming together, and they don't get along. The Pharisees, they're, they're the conservative folks. They're the Fox News people. They're, they're popular with the grassroots. They're the teachers of the law. They, they don't like the Herodians. The Herodians, they're seen as the elites. They're, they're the CNN people. They, they know people in power. And, and these two groups, they just generally agree on nothing. All right, these are, This is, this is uh, two polar opposites. But yet, here they come together to trap Jesus. And, and this is what I think is so fascinating. It's fascinating how the gospel brings people together. In, in strange ways, the gospel brings people together, both positively and negatively. It, it brings different people together into one family to be a part of the church, to, to glorify and to worship God. But it, but it also brings people together who, who want to fight against Jesus. It's kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And, and that's what we see here. And, and that's what these, these two groups come together to do today. They, they come to question the authority of Jesus. And so they start by flattering Jesus. Oh, oh, you teacher, you're not swayed by appearances. You, you're, you are fair and balanced. You're a straight shooter. You, you, you never stray from a difficult question. Again, butt kissing one-on-one, right? They're, they're laying the trap for him. 
They're, they're trying to push him into a corner and offer this false praise. But, but then they get to their question. And the question is, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, this is not a sincere question. All right? This is not a sincere question at all. It, it's a test. And Jesus immediately sees through their hypocrisy. He, he knows they're trying to trap him. And so, so he just calls them out right away. He says, hey, why are you trying to trap me? Why are you trying to, to catch me in something? And, and maybe he's frustrated. Maybe he's angry. I, if I were Jesus, I'd probably be frustrated and angry with this. You know, people come to you and, and they, they ask stupid questions. And, and you know, teachers that say there are no stupid questions, well, they're really nice teachers. All right? They're really nice because there are some stupid questions. And, and my, my favorite thing to tell coaches when they want to ask a question and it's kind of a stupid question is stupid questions get stupid answers. I mean, that's, that's kind of my, and, and that doesn't always go over well, but Jesus, he, he's frustrated and angry with them maybe, and, and maybe he just felt sorry for them. He's like, really? We just went through this, and you want to you try this again? Really? Like, it, it didn't work out so well for you the last time, and yet here you are again, and you want to do this again. The, the questioners knew that, that if Jesus said that you you got to pay your taxes to Caesar, then, then the people would be upset. I mean, the, the Jewish people, they, they hated this yearly tax. They, they hated the Romans, and this was a Roman tax. And, and, and let's just be honest about it. Who likes paying taxes? I mean, nobody ever says, hey, I want to pay my taxes, right? No, nobody, nobody's jumping up and down over that. And by the way, April 15th is coming up real soon, so if you haven't done that already. You, you, 18th, hey, see, that's because CPAs, that's why they know that stuff. So, good, I got a couple more days then. <laughs> No, so, so they, they hate this tax. And the only reason why the, the Sanhedrin want to have Jesus, you know, why they haven't arrested Jesus themselves is because Jesus is so widely popular with the people. I mean, and, and really, why wouldn't he be? I mean, he's healing people. He's, he's performing amazing miracles. Why wouldn't he be popular with the people? And so they're looking for something that's going to turn the people against him. And if he endorses a tax... I mean, that's, that's big news. That, that's going to turn the people against it. I mean, isn't that really what kind of torpedoed George Bush, uh, the, the, the first George Bush, when, when he said, read my lips, no new taxes? That didn't work out so well for him, did it? And, and, and that's kind of what the Sanhedrin is trying to hap, get happen with Jesus here. But, but on the other hand, if, if he says, no, you don't have to pay your taxes to Caesar, well, now the Herodians are there. And the Herodians, they report back to, you guessed it, Herod. And if Herod reports back to Caesar that there's this guy saying that, you, that the Jews shouldn't pay their tax, well, guess what they're going to do? They're going to come in and they're going to arrest him. And so in, in the Sanhedrin's minds, this is a win-win. We're either going to turn the people against him or we're going to turn the Romans against him. And so Jesus, he, he, he sees what's going on and he springs the trap. And so he asks to see a denarius. A denarius is a coin. It's the equivalent in that day and age to about a day's wage. So, so think of, of him asking for a $100 bill. He says, hey, let me, let me see this. And, and so somebody hands him this coin. And we know what one looks like. If you want to Google denarius and click on the images, you can, you can see images of, of this coin. It's a, it's a silver coin. And on it is the picture of Tiberius Caesar, who, who reigned from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D. He's the emperor of, of Rome, or the Caesar, during Jesus' day and age. And so he, he's 
faces on this coin. And, and on this coin, on one side is his face, and it has this abbreviated slogan. It's Tiberius Caesar Augustus D.V. Augustus Philus Augustus, which means this. It means Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And on the back side of this coin is engraved the, the, the phrase Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest in Latin. There's a reason why the Jews hate this coin and hate this tax. Because this is a blasphemous coin. It, I mean, it, it, is, it, it itself uh, is saying that Caesar is the high priest, that he is the son of a divine God. His father, Augustus, is seen as divine. And so Jesus asked this really important question. He said, whose likeness and inscriptions on the coin? And everyone knew it's Tiberius Caesar. Everybody knows it's Benjamin Franklin on the $100 bill, right? Everybody knew who was on the, on the denarius. And then Jesus utters one of his most famous phrases, his famous sentences when he sees this coin. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now this is a loaded statement. But, but in this statement, it lays the foundation for, for a Christian perspective on politics. Now, again, it doesn't give us all the details. It's not going to sort out every issue and every problem. It doesn't tell us who to vote for. But it lays the foundation for a Christian approach to politics and religion, to church and state, to, to God and government. And there are several, I think about seven implications concerning God and government that we can draw from, from this response of Jesus. So we're going to work through those pretty quickly this morning and the first one is this is to be a good citizen to be a good citizen even if you think the government is bad in, in, in a few days from from this encounter jesus is going to be killed by the romans in, in 70 a.d the romans are going to come in and they're going to destroy the temple of jerusalem they're going to wipe it out in, in the years following they're going to kill some of the apostles and they're going to kill hundreds if not thousands of christians but before this time, they had squashed a number of Jewish rebellions. Rome was not a feel-good sort of empire. Now, now let me be clear about this. The Romans, they, they weren't Nazis. They, they were like many other empires and civilizations of the day. It's not that they persecuted the Jews and, and Christians whenever they wanted. They, they did so when they felt like they had to. And they also had a lot of good accomplishments. They did good things. But they also persecuted they weren't kind to Christians, and, and they insisted on worshiping the emperor. So it's safe to say that no matter how much you like or how much you dislike American politics and, and politicians, Rome was worse. And yet what we find here is Jesus saying, pay your taxes. Caesar is on the coin, so give, to him, the, give him the coin. Give him the tribute. Pay the denarius. Paul makes the same point in Romans chapter 13. He says, Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. What Paul is saying is, owe, owe no one anything. Now, to be clear, he's not saying you can't have a, a house mortgage. He, he's not saying that. What he's saying is you need to make your payments. If, if you owe people money, pay them and pay them on time. Don't, don't owe people when it's due to them. So, so if honor is due to an emperor, give him honor. If taxes are due to the state, pay your taxes. Don't, don't leave out what you owe. Instead, be a good citizen, even if you think the government is corrupt or foolish. 
I've, I've heard some Christians say that they, they just can't pay their taxes. They can't pay what they owe because they know that their money is supporting a cause that they don't agree with. But Jesus didn't use that logic here. He said your obligation is to pay your taxes. You're ethically responsible for being a good citizen. You're not culpable for how the government uses that money or how the government chooses to spend your money. You're responsible to pay your taxes. That's your responsibility. Past that is not your responsibility. And, And here's the great thing about our country, the blessing of living in a democracy, is that we have a voice in how our country's money is spent. But Jesus' first point is very simple. Be good citizens. Caesar has a tax, so pay the tax. Secondly is this, that human government has legitimate authority, even when it's exercised poorly. Human government has legitimate authority even when it's exercised poorly. And this goes along with with the last point. The the reason we pay taxes, the reason Christians are supposed to be good citizens, is because God has instituted human government. Now, look, it's never going to be perfect. Because it's human, right? It's never going to be perfect. In fact, sometimes it's tragically imperfect. But, but think about this. Have you, have you ever thought about government as a gift? Probably not. Probably not. We don't typically look as our, at our government as a gift. But, but just think about it. I, in fact, I would encourage you to, to start maybe viewing our government as a gift. Because think about what happened in Afghanistan a couple months ago. I mean, that, that situation just descended into complete chaos, Right? And, and, and there, there's no government. Think about uh, how, how fearful people are in that situation where, where they're just afraid that everything's going to descend into complete anarchy. And anarchy is always worse than, than a monarchy or democracy. And so government can be a gift. It provides rules and orders. Um, it, it's why a country that's dealing with anarchy will often welcome in a dictator because, you know, Anybody in charge is better than nobody in charge. And so, so they just welcome this, this dictator in to, to give order, to bring order to this chaos. So however frustrated you might be with government, and look, I get it. There are plenty of reasons to be frustrated with our government. you got to remember this, that God has instituted. Again, Paul says in Romans 13, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Government was God's idea. It was. John Calvin said this. He said, there is no higher calling than to be a civil authority. Now, I I read that statement, and I have to kind of read it a couple times, because I would expect John Calvin to say, there's no higher calling than to be a a, a preacher, right? That's what John Calvin was, and it's what I am, so I, I think he should say that. I think teachers probably say, there's no higher calling than to be a teacher. Whatever field you work in, there's no higher calling than to be that. But John, John Calvin said, there's no higher calling than to be a civil authority. In, in the New Testament, we're repeatedly told to pray for our rulers, to pray for their good, because their good is for our good. Paul, again, says in 1 Timothy, in, in chapter 2, he says this, he says, first of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We pray for those that are in authority so that we might have quiet and dignified lives. We pray for those in, in authority, even the ones that we don't agree with. Because they maintain order, they punish wrongdoing, they uphold the law. So, and we, we pray for that so that we can live a life free from their interference. No matter how much you might disagree with what the government is doing, Christians ought to lead the way in showing respect for government officials. I'll say this, it really bothers me 
and this is personal opinion, okay? So, so let me just clarify this. But it really bothers me, and, and, and it's been pretty prevalent in the last three presidencies, under President Obama, President Trump, and now President Biden, how people actively root for them to fail. Okay, and we got both, two different parties here, all right? So we got Republican and Democrat. And people are rooting for the president to fail. And that makes no sense to me. None. Because if the president fails, guess what else fails? We do, right? Our country does. If the president succeeds, guess who else succeeds? We do, our country. I get we don't, we're not going to agree with everything that they do. I understand that. We have a right to make our opinions known and sometimes make our opinions known strongly. We, we have a right to voice our disagreement, to, to, to do it strongly at times. But we also always have to remember that they're the president. And God has called us to, to honor them. Because government authority has been instituted by God. I, I'll tell you this, another little personal pet peeve is the, the Let's Go Brandon chants. Um, it, it bothers me that Christians are very active in that. Um, if you don't know what that is, you can Google it. Um, but it's not a really nice phrase. And it's not a phrase that as Christians we ought to be directing toward the president of either party, regardless of who, who's in office. Um, God has instituted government. And he's pretty clear about his command to pray for, for the good of those leaders. Third is this. Our allegiance to God and our allegiance to our country are not inherently incompatible. Sometimes Christians talk as if love for God opposes loyalty to your country. That the, that the love of country is always a bad thing. But, but Jesus shows us it's possible to honor Caesar and to honor God. And, and some of you think, oh, I've never heard that. Well, I can tell you, I had a lot of Bible college professors that, that were pretty adamant that, that allegiance to God was above everything else, and it should be, and that there was really no room for allegiance to anything else. But Jesus shows us it's possible to honor both, to honor Caesar and to honor God. And this is especially clear if you understand the history about the poll tax or, or the census tax. It was instituted in 6 AD, and people hated it. By, by the time Jesus was ministering, the, this tax hadn't been around very long. And that's partly why people were so agitated with it, because it was something new and, and they just didn't like it. And so when it's instituted, a man named Judas of Galilee, not the Judas in the New Testament, we're going to talk about him next week though, the, the Judas of Galilee, he leads a revolt, but it's squashed by the Romans. The, the historian Josephus wrote about Judas of Galilee, he said this, he called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay tribute to the Romans and for putting up with mortal masters in place of God. Judas of Galilee and the zealots believed allegiance to God and allegiance to earthly governments were fundamentally incompatible. Since God is your king, you have no earthly king. Theocracy was the only way to go. And afterwards, because after this, this conflict between Judas and the Romans, there was a constant conflict between the church and the state, between God and government. When Jesus tells, us to, tells people to render to Caesar the things that are, are Caesar's, he means you have duties to your country and to state governments that, that don't necessarily infringe on your duty to God. It, it's possible to have allegiance to a lesser authority because that authority has been instituted by a higher authority. Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, Paul and, Paul and Peter both imply that God and government, religion and politics are compatible. However, there are times when civil disobedience is accepted and, and even required. If, if the government opposes God and His law, then we must always side with God. 
But the normal state, the normal government that's envisioned here is one that complies with God. And just because the church is not the state and the state is not God doesn't mean that we should always believe that the church must always be against the state. There's room for, for us to coexist. Here, here's the fourth thing. because we, we need to continue moving. And this one might be a, a little controversial. And it's this. It is acceptable to have some measure of separation between religion and government. It is acceptable to have some separation between those two things. Be, between church and, and the state. Put it this way. God and the government have overlapping but distinct spheres. Government is always accountable to God. But if we render some things to Caesar and render other things to God, it must be the case that they are not one and the same. That it is possible to have some separation between church and state. And I keep saying some because that's always a difficult matter. Like where's the line at, right? There are all sorts of difficult issues that that aren't going to be solved by verse 17 by Jesus simply saying, render to Caesar what Caesar's. But on the other hand, we shouldn't pretend that you can strip government from any moral or religious influence. So some people will say that you know government shouldn't legislate morality. That's a can I be blunt? That's a stupid thing to say. Um, what are you doing if you say murders against the law? That's a moral statement, right? You, you're at least saying murder is, is not good for for human society. That that murder is. It, is taking value away from life, right? It's a moral statement. It's impossible to strip religious or moral claims from government and, and the public square. It, it can't be done. You, you look at all, just about all of our laws that, that were started in this country, and they all have some moral background to them. They all have some moral backing. There's a reason why we, why we prosecute thieves, right? Because they stole something. Guess what? That's a moral law. But on the other hand, this passage indicates that Jesus did not have a vision for the state that meant it had to be ruled by all the laws of God. So that God's laws were identical with the laws of state. As one author said, Jesus was not a theonomist or that he, he believed theocracy was the only way to go. Listen to this quote from D.A. Carson. He said, Up until this point in history, religion and state were everywhere intertwined. This was true, of course, in ancient Israel. At least in theory, Israel was a theocracy. Similarly, in the pagan world, most of the gods of the people were necessarily the gods of the state. That means whatever pagan gods were of the people, that's what, what the government worshipped as well. And when the Romans took over a new territory, they arranged a god swap. They would adopt some of the local gods into their own pantheon and, and insist that the locals would take on some of the Roman gods. But nowhere was there a state that was divorced from all gods. A state that we would call a secular state. With, with, with God and with religion and, and politics occupying distinct, even if overlapping spheres. He says this, he says, but on the face of it, this is what Jesus was advocating. Certainly the utterance of the Lord Jesus has been one of the roots, through, through not, through the, though not the only one, of long-standing and constantly evolving tensions between the church and the state across the centuries. Again, I like this language of distinct but overlapping. This doesn't mean that Christ is not Lord of all. Of course he's Lord of all. And, and he exercises his lordship in, in, in different arenas. Jesus says in John 18, he says, My kingdom is not of this world, but, but his reign is not going to be fully inaugurated until the end of the age. Right? Revelation chapter 11 tells us that one day the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of Christ. But until then, we have distinct yet overlapping spheres. Christians and Christian politicians need to figure out how to work and live in that tension. We've got to figure out how to work and live in, in that tension between church and state. 
I, I, I think we're more like the Israelites that were in exile in Babylon than we are like the Israelites in the promised land. And here's why I say that. God, God was the ruler of Israel in the promised land, right? We, we know that. When, but when they were in exiles in Babylon, they worked for the peace of the city. If it came down to obeying God or man, they, they obeyed God. They, they had to maintain a distinctive culture within a culture. But they were exiles. They, they, weren't, they, weren't, um, um, they, they were foreigners there. In the New Testament, we're, we're called strangers and aliens. And so our position is more like the Jews in, in exile. We are pilgrims trying to make our way through this world. And so we got to understand that the church and state are two distinct yet overlapping spheres. This, this is one of the main differences between Islam and Christianity. F- Philip Yancey once told a story of a Muslim friend of his who said, When I read the Quran, I find nothing that tells me as a Muslim how to live as a minority. And when I read the New Testament, I find nothing that tells you as a Christian how to rule as the majority. And I think that's a legitimate point. I- Islam grew with state and religion intertwined. So, so Muslims have a diff- difficult time seeing religion and politics as different spheres. That's why Muslim countries often lack a real freedom of religion. On the other hand, Christianity began as a persecuted minority religion. That's why most of the New Testament addresses Christians as pilgrims and aliens. We were not the majority. Christians in other countries today typically have to wrestle with this more than Christians in America because Christianity has become a majority here. But but in but it's because of passages like this one that we see in Mark chapter 12 that, that Christians are able to accept the First Amendment. The, the First Amendment that grants freedom of religion, even though that freedom allows people to do things that we might believe are sinful. There are distinct and overlapping spheres, and God allows for that. The fifth one is this, is that God's people are not tied to any one nation. Now, I want us as, a, as American Christians to hear this, that, that God's people are not tied to any one nation. When, when Jesus said, give to Caesar what, what belongs to Caesar, he's essentially saying you can support a nation and you can be a part of a nation that does not formally worship the one true God and yet still be part of my people. True religion is not bound up by one country. The church can be transcultural and transnational. This is what Mark Deaver from uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. says about this passage. He says, Jesus' approval of paying taxes to Rome was revolutionary. But by this, he shows us that the legitimacy of a government is not determined by whether it supports the worship of the one true God or even allows for it. By Jesus not requiring those who would would follow him only to support states which are formally allied, allied to the true God, as in the Old Testament Israel, Jesus unhitches following him from any particular nation. That's why we can say that the church is international. Christianity is not uniquely American or Western religion. How often does America show up in the Bible? Well, I can tell you how many. I can give you at least a good hint. Less than one. The events in the Bible took place in the Middle East. That's where Christianity started. And while Christianity has spread throughout Europe and uh, during the first centuries, one of the strongest locations of Christianity in in the early uh, parts of Christianity was in modern-day Turkey. That's where the seven letters of of Revelation were sent. We're going to talk about those uh, at the end of next month. St. Augustine, one of the most famous theologians in the history of church, he was a bishop in North Africa, which is now primarily dominated by Islam. In the past hundred years or so, Christianity's center of gravity is shifting to the south and to the east. 
There, there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in England. There are more Presbyterians in Korea than in the United States. Huge missionary forces are being sent out, not just from the U.S., but from places like Brazil and Korea. Because Episcopal churches have been ordaining homosexuals in the last few years, Anglican churches in Rwanda and Uganda, which are still very theologically conservative, they've been sending missionaries and church planters to the United States. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. Places like Rwanda, I mean, all the problems that they have there, they are sending missionaries here because they see here as a mission field. That should tell us something about the state of the church. The church is international. And we need to understand that you do not have to be an American or disown your country in order to follow Jesus. Sixth thing, and we're almost done, is that the state is not God. So so far we've been looking really at the first half of Jesus' statement, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But let's move to the second half of that statement where he says, render to God the things that are God. Until this point, you might think that, Je- that oh, excuse me. Until this point, you might think that Jesus is pretty conservative; that he's pro-government; he's siding with Rome on everything. But pay close attention to what Jesus says here. He says clearly that God and Caesar are not identical. Some things belong to Caesar, and other things belong to God. Re- remember the denarius coin, the the one with Tiberius Caesar Augustus's picture of it. Jesus says, "Go ahead and pay that coin to Caesar." However, he didn't say, when you give to Caesar, you give to God, right? He didn't say that. He says, give to Caesar, but also give to God. Caesar is not God. Augustus is not divine. The state is not God. Human government is run by humans. That means it's bound to be influenced by sin. It's bound to be corrupt at times. And sure, biblical principles will be infused into government systems. Honestly, I believe that our government is whether people want to admit it or not, is, is based largely on biblical principles. The, the, the idea of checks and balances, that's a biblical principle. It's not good if anyone gains too much power. We, we tend to gravitate as Christians toward idolatry because we're sinners. The state gravitates toward more power, and that's sinful. And if we're not careful, we might, we probably wouldn't say it out loud, but at least in our thinking and in our actions, we might start to believe that Caesar is God, that the state is God, that the state can provide all the solutions to our problems. In fact, I'll tell you, I think that's one of the main problems with the church today, is that for the last 50 years or so, that the church has relied on the government to do the ministries of the church. There are a lot of ministries that, social programs, I guess is what we would call them now, that the church for years, for centuries, had been leading the way on. And then we seemingly just handed them over to the government. And when we did, we lost our influence. We lost our influence because we, we decided, all right, government, you can take care of the widows and the orphans better than we can. But you know what was never assigned to the government? To take care of the widows and the orphans. You know what was assigned to the church? Take care of the widows and the orphans. That was our job. And we just handed it over. We, we often think that the government is going to be our solution. What Ronald Reagan say? The nine scariest words in the world are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Jesus says respect the government, to honor Caesar. But know this for sure, that the state, that the government is not ultimate. The state is not God. The government doesn't have comprehensive authority. And it doesn't matter what country you're from, your government is not divine. 
Here's our final implication. Is that we owe our ultimate allegiance to God. The, the power of the state is legitimate, but it is limited. Our allegiance to our country should, should never be absolute. We should never say we will do what, whatever it takes for our country no matter what. Because there might be a point where, our where we have to say our country is not obeying God, right? On the other hand, our allegiance to God is absolute. The, the book of Exodus gives us a great uh, example of this. The, the midwives, uh, they're, they're commanded to kill all the baby boys, right? Because, because uh, all the baby boys of the Israelites. And yet, they didn't do it. They, they didn't obey Pharaoh. Instead, they obeyed God. Uh, Peter and John wouldn't stop preaching about Jesus even though the authorities told them to stop. Daniel, he's thrown in a lion's den because he prayed. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they chose to obey, obey God rather than the king of Babylon. Our, our allegiance to the state is limited, but our allegiance to God is not. Giving God his due is always more important than giving Caesar his due. In, in verse 16, Jesus asked a question. He says, whose likeness is on the coin? The, the Greek word there is, is, that's used for likenesses is akon, which sounds a lot like our English word icon. It means image. And guess what? It's the same word used in the Greek Old Testament translation of Genesis chapter 1, where God says, let us make man in our image, in our icon. So what are the things that belong to Caesar? Taxes and honor and respect. But what belongs to God? You. Your whole self. Caesar gets some of the coins, but God has a right to all of you. Imagine standing before God's throne and, and Jesus says to you, Hey, come up here. Let me look at you. Let, let me get a closer look at you. Whose likeness is on her? Whose image is in him? The answer is God's. You are made in God's image. And if you hear nothing else this morning, or you take nothing else away from this message, hear that you are made in the image of God. That means you have value, undeterminable value. You, you owe your life and your existence to God. You're, you, this is going to sound kind of crass, but you, you kind of like that coin, dirty and rusted, turning green. You might be tainted by sin, but you are still worth something to God because you are made in His image. His face is on you. You are in His likeness. You belong to Him. And the only way to render to God the things that are, are God's is to give your very self to Him. So here's what I want you to ask yourself this morning as we wrap up. What am I holding back? What am I holding back from God? If I'm supposed to, to give God what is God's and, and I am God's, what am I holding back? If it's an offense to withhold taxes from the United States Treasury, how much more offensive is it to withhold what should be rendered to the one who made you from the king of the universe, from the one whose image is stamped on you? Look, you might be able to hide a few things from the IRS, but you can't hide from God. You belong to Him. You are His you were fearfully and wonderfully made in His image. So let me ask you, have you been putting off complete submission to Him? Thinking that maybe you can hide from Him? Have you been holding back part of you from Him? Look, He made you in His image. His inscription is written all over you. So give your life to Christ. Give your whole self to Christ. Surrender the fight and render to God the things that belong to God. Give Caesar his coin. But give God all of who you are. Let me pray for us.